former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, he will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And so begins the book that is popularly known as the book of Acts. Lights, please. Acts was written by Luke, the physician, who's also the writer of the Gospel of Luke, named after him. Uh, it could be called the second book of Luke, if you like. Uh, some people think there should be one book, Luke-Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or the Acts of God. See, Acts of God is not a bad thing. Um, it's the Acts of God through his people, the church. It covers 30 years of church history. It is written around 60 A.D. Paul is still alive at the end of the book, and he was martyred around 63 or 64 A.D. Um, <clears throat> it begins a whole lot like Luke begins his gospel. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. His gospel, he begins with these words, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of these things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Who in the world was Theophilus? Some would say Theophilus is a metaphorical name 
referring to the reader because the word Theophilus, the name means the lover of God or the the friend of God. It's the combination of the word theos for God. We get the word theology from that. And the word phileo or friend or love, friendly love. Uh, Theophilus, uh, you get the word philosopher, uh, the lover of sophis or sophia, the lover of wisdom, the lover of God. Uh, That could be the case. Others would say, Theophilus may be a new believer or a believer that Luke is writing on behalf of him. Others say he may actually be paying Luke to write this. He may have been a Roman citizen. It was common to call a Roman citizen most excellent Caesar or most excellent one. And so here he honors this person, Theophilus. Uh, Some people think maybe he was an employer of Luke, that Luke was his personal physician that he released from his duties to go explore explore this Jesus thing, and in so doing, he became a believer. We don't know for sure, but we know the book was written, and it covers history that is verified by biblical archaeology. So he refers to his former account, the Gospel of Luke, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commands to the disciples whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days. What were these infallible proofs? They were proofs of his resurrection. First of all, there was no need to prove that he died. It's a matter of the historical record. World history records that. He was killed by professional executioners, and he was buried in a tomb guarded by Romans. But something happened three days later. The tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. The Roman seal is broken. And stories of his appearances began to be made. His fearful followers suddenly became bold and fearless. And even his family, who followed him from afar, got on board with the program. No one recanted the resurrection story even under the threat of torture and actual torture to the point of death. The story spread far and the wide. The church was born 50 days later. And the gospel is still spreading because of this resurrection story. So convincing were the proofs that three centuries later, the Roman Empire embraced it and made Christianity the official religion of the empire. Many infallible proofs, proving himself alive over the course of 40 days, the end of verse 3 says, being seen by them and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So in his proving himself to be alive, he's preparing himself for his departure. As I shared last Sunday, when God begins something, he begins at the end and then backs up to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, he made them, and then it tells how he made them. So the heavens and the earth were a done deal in his heart and mind, and then he begins to speak and create things into existence. Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and then history marches onward to where it actually happens. And so here he's coming to the conclusion of his ministry, about to ascend But now it's the beginning of something new. You know, when you exit one room, you enter another. 
When you exit your house, you enter the outer doors. When you exit the outer doors, you enter your house. When you entered this room, you exited that room. When you graduate from high school, you commence the rest of your life. So it's a, it's a unique position we're at here at the beginning of this book. It's the ending of his earthly ministry, having proven himself to be alive, at the same time, the beginning of a new ministry. You know, if you knew you were about to leave your loved ones, those closest to you, you would gather your thoughts together and share with them the things that are dearest to you, the most important things to you. Some, some people have the privilege of knowing that they're dying, that, that they're about to go and they have time to prepare. And those words of wisdom that they share with their families are very profound. And here Christ, in his preparation to ascend, shares very profound things to his followers. He said here at the end of verse 3, he spoke to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Matthew's account of one of his appearances, he tells his followers about the kingdom of God, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, because I have all authority, go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark records what he said at another appearance. In chapter 16, he told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned, whether he's baptized or not. And these signs will follow those who believe. Verse 17, in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. As a missionary kid in the interior of Liberia, I remember one of the preachers being poisoned by a witch doctor and he recovered from that deadly attack. And so this, fulfill, this promise has been fulfilled countless times over the centuries. In John chapter 20, he has a little different approach in one of these appearances. He greets his followers and says, peace to you, shalom to you, shalom y'all. As a father has sent me, I also send you. This is in John 20. Verse 22, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Then he said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He's given them with, he's given them authority. Uh, with authority comes responsibility, right? Anybody in the room have a driver's license? That's the authority to drive without getting in trouble for it, provided that you drive within the boundaries of the law and on assigned roadways. So authority comes with responsibility. And so with the authority to forgive sins comes the responsibility to, to forgive sins, and not to hold on to unforgiveness. He had warned them numerous times previously on the perils of unforgiveness. He said, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. 
He told the story of an unforgiving servant who was going to be tormented because of his unforgiveness. Now, there are some who misunderstand this passage. Actually, a a whole big segment of the Christian world, a group of denominations that believe this was authorization to them to hold unforgiveness, to hold people's sins against them. That they have this kind of a power over people. That's oppression. That is dead wrong. In fact, one of them officially has a number set on abortion. If someone's had an abortion, that's a sin to be forgiven of, but they will hold it against you for 10 years before they will give you absolution from the sin of abortion. That is dead wrong. Basically, what I believe he's saying here, if you retain sin, those sins are retained. You better not have unforgiveness in your heart. There will be consequences for it. Get rid of all your grudges. We're not about grudges. or We're about the ministry of reconciliation. If you hold grudges, you're going to have consequences for it. How many people grow up hating their dad and wind up being just like their dad? Why? You retain sin, that sin is retained. And your kids will grow up and hate you and be just like you. It happens. So he's giving them authority at the same time, strong instruction. So these things of the kingdom of God, the way the kingdom works, he taught were most important, especially prior to his departure. Verse 4 of Acts 1. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, quote, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, unquote. How many days was it? It was actually 10 days. They stayed in Jerusalem for 10 days. When he appeared in, um, well, Luke, when he ended his gospel, he ends with this scene. And he relates, the, the Lord said to them, Behold, Luke 24, 49, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them. He ascended and carried up into heaven. So while he's blessing them, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord causes his face to shine upon you. While he's saying words of blessing, he's disappearing. And they worshiped him, verse 52, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, just like he told them, and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. That's how Luke ends. Now Acts, or Luke 2, second book of Luke, begins with what we're reading this morning. Verse 6 says that they asked him this question, Lord, will you at this time, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons what the Father has put in his own authority. You're getting ahead of me here. There's something now I want you to do. Go tarry in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There is a point on the earth's surface in New Zealand in a city called Christ Church. That's the name of the city. 
And that point by measurement is the furthest point from where Jesus made this statement on the Mount of Olives. And so there's a a monument there, a plaque there that lets you know you're at the furthest point from where Jesus gave this command. So the gospel geographically may not have reached every single person, but it has reached the point that could be called the end of the earth from where he talked about. Isn't that cool? Verse 9, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, so this is a visible thing. We say visible. He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Look at that again. This same Jesus, can we say the same? Who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. As he left, so he's coming back. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. In the area of the... uh, Mount of Olives, that's known as Bethany, which is where he was by. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would bring life to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to our new series, Acts, Christ's Ministry Continues. We just celebrated Christmas and some of those passages that we read about Christmas, about the coming of the Messiah, or his mandate, or his mission statement. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, or unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. That's who he was, that's who he came to be, and that's who he continues to be through his church. And in the midst of his ministry, he did things like read Isaiah 61 and say, this is what I'm about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set captives free, to visit people in prison, to bring sight to the blind. He's come to do this kind of thing. And it's continuing through his church. Just because he's ascended didn't mean it's over. In fact, prior to his ascension, he could only be at one place at one time. If you wanted the ministry of Jesus, you had to go to where he was. You had to make a pilgrimage to find him if you ever had the blessing enough to be able to hear about him by word of mouth. He said, it's better that I go away. Or if I go not away, the Holy Spirit won't come. Now, we are not limited geographically. The the presence of Jesus is not limited geographically. Now his presence is international. We can call on his name no matter where we are. And through the presence of his spirit, reach him. Be saved by him. Be healed by him. Be guided by him. Receive wisdom from him. So this is a good thing. So the book of Acts is about the continuation of his ministry. Today I would like to talk to you on the topic entitled, The Promises, Promises. Now, why why do I like weird titles? Well, they stick in your mind. Maybe you'll remember something that you wouldn't remember otherwise. Um... Jesus is the ultimate promise, is he not? He was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Not far from here in Glen Rose, every year there's a season in the outdoor theater, uh, theatrical season called the... And who is the promise? 
He is the promise. And here, prior to his ascension, are two important promises that are given. One is given by him, and the other is given by the angels, which he had already given them. The promises, promises. First of all, let's just talk about the promise himself, the Messiah. In this passage, we see our promised Messiah ascending after reminding his followers of the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, followed by two angels promising his return. The promises promise. Let's talk about the promise himself. There's two kinds of messianic promises. He's the promised Messiah, and some would be confused and looking for him in the Old Testament because he didn't fulfill all of them. And so some rabbis thought there was actually two kinds of Messiah or two Messiahs. One is the suffering Messiah. We see him clearly in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, and he uh, fulfilled these. Read these sometime. Isaiah 20, uh, Psalm 22 is told in the first person. The person writing that is prophesying prophetically as though he were Jesus. And it's a picture of what he went through, what was going through his mind on the cross. And Isaiah 53 is what he accomplished for us on the cross. There's another kind of messianic promises in the Old Testament. The conquering Messiah. Psalm 110 is very clear there in Zechariah 14. The, the key to understanding this paradox is in realizing that Jesus will return to fulfill his unfulfilled promises. So he didn't fail. He fulfilled his mission to come and suffer for our sins, to bring redemption to us so that the church could be born, made up of people who are redeemed, who serve him, not because they're automatons or because they're made to serve him, but serve him from a heart that is fully yielded to him. That's what heaven is going to be made up of. If everybody's going to heaven, then heaven will become earth too. In heaven, suddenly you don't become a robot. So here he's conforming us to his image, making us citizens that represent what heaven will be like. And then he's coming back as a conquering Messiah. He came first as a shepherd with a staff, as a lamb to be slain. He's coming back as a king to conquer, not with a staff, but with a sword. Can I get it? amen? Amen. The result of the Father's promise, this promise of the Holy Spirit, he said, would be power. You shall receive. Can we say receive? Receive power and you shall be witnesses to me. Now, they were already believers. Who knows that? They're already believers. But they were yet to be a receiver of the Holy Spirit. And so in this room are dozens of believers. But since you have believed, just like Paul asked some people in Acts 19, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? There is a blessing of power for you and I to make us bolder, more convincing witnesses for his glory. If you're a believer, but you're a pipsqueak, it may be the Lord has some power for you to receive. Who's open to receiving all that the Lord has for them? So we got the promise of the Holy Spirit, and now we have the promise of his return. The two angels delivered this promise. They said this promise was this same Jesus will so come 
as you saw him go. So just as they saw him exit, we will see him enter. The same Jesus. Don't be duped by the cults. One of the cults that likes to knock on people's doors made a prediction years ago that the Lord was coming back at such a time on such a date. When it didn't happen, instead of saying we were wrong, they built a whole doctrine around that. Say, well, he came back. It's just that uh, when he left, it really wasn't his body that he left in. So they did damage to, you know, the story of the resurrection in in their doctrine by saying he was, you know, just a spirit or something. No, the scripture said the same Jesus, the one who showed himself alive for 40 days, speaking of things confirming the kingdom of God with many infallible proofs, the same Jesus who you saw go will come back just as you saw him go. It means, this means his return will be literal. Can we say literal? Visible. Can we say visible? They were looking. They were gazing into heaven. Why? Because that's where they saw him go. You see him? Oh, I think I see him. No, that's a bird. It's a bird. It's a man. It's Superman. His return will be physical. Yes, he had a resurrected body that could be in one place at one time, could eat food, and could be felt. He proved these things in his appearances. His return will be supernatural. It will be amazing. It will not be the normal. And geographical. He left from a specific place. He's coming back to a specific place. Where will that be? Well, Zechariah 14 says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's where he left from, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west creating a valley. Now, when you go there, you can go and see where this place was, is, and there's graveyards outside the eastern gate. In fact, the eastern gate of Jerusalem, where he's supposed to return through, is all walled up. They've laid stone in there. I guess they think they're going to stop God. And there's just hundreds of graves and gravestones outside. Maybe they're looking for his return. Maybe they think they're going to prevent his return. I don't know. To me, it's testimony that one day God's coming and man's foolishness is going to be exposed. Hope in this promise purifies us. How many want to be pure? Hope in a promise purifies us. I just have three points on this. We have promises to look forward to. There's something about looking forward to something that helps you uh, make choices. Maybe you're at Chicago O'Hare Airport hoping to catch a flight on it's a bad weather day and you've got time to go eat something and while you've ordered your meal and you're waiting on your food to arrive, the intercom says that your flight is leaving immediately. You have a choice to make. Do I stay? I'm hungry. Or do I go? to meet the girl of my dreams who's waiting for me in Dallas at the airport. That promise of who's waiting on you will purify your choices and you will leave the food behind and go and meet your appointment. So it is with the Lord. There's 
a, a promise of his return. But between now and then are all these options, all these choices, some of which could deter you away from the purposes of God for your life. What will you do? We have plenty of reasons to be ready. Because when he comes back, he's going to execute vengeance on all ungodliness. That's why we want to get rid of it out of our own lives. I love this cartoon parable. This girl's getting ready for a date, and a friend says, so you're getting washed and ready for your big date. Why bother? I don't think he's coming. Shouldn't he have been here by now? Sounds like the enemy, doesn't it? Oh, he'll be here, and it could be soon. I want to be ready when he arrives. That's the church, being cleansed by the hope of Christ's return. 1 John 3, verse 2 says it like this. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So our hope for that day, hope for the day of being like him, purifies us. It just does. It's normal. What's this uh, Santa Claus manipulation thing we do with kids? Oh, you better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. It's parents' attempt to manipulate their kids into behaving. He's keeping a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to see if you're naughty or nice. You don't want coal in your stocking, do you? You better behave. Back to the sermon. All right. Hope in this promise purifies us. We have good cause to avoid vengeance. Good cause to let go, let it go, let it go of all our animosities and grudges. Why? Because one day the Lord's coming back. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man will come in the glory of the Father with his angels. Then he will reward each according to his works. You ever get upset that it seems only the good people suffer and the bad guys get away with murder? Does it ever seem like that? Does it ever seem like life isn't fair? Only the good die young, things like that? Not always true, but there is a certain amount of truth in that, and I understand it. But God is God, and we're not. Now's a time of mercy, but the day of judgment is coming. It's coming, it's coming. And we best stay out of God's way. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, beloved, he cares about the person reading. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So being a vigilante, not God's will for you. Now, if he's calling you in law enforcement, Romans 13 is there for you. The Bible says they bear not the sword in vain. And they serve the purposes of God in helping us to live in a peaceful land so that we can carry the gospel, amen? How many is thankful for law enforcement? But even they can't cover all the bases of expunging all evil from the world. One day, 
The Lord, as he promised, is coming back like he went away, and he <laughs> he's not going to be merciful then. So, here we are today, just reviewing the promises, promises. If you know you're not living right and you're worthy of God's judgment, then all you have to do is call upon him and say, Lord, I want your mercy. Forgive me of my sins. Make me your child. Help me to follow you. Maybe you've already done that. You need to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit can help empower you and I to go through difficulties, to go through injustice, to let go of our grudges so that we can be bold witnesses for Christ. How can you be bold witness to everybody when you're carrying grudges against some of them? You can't do it. He breathed on his followers and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you retain sins, sins are retained. May God enable us to not retain any sins anymore, but to be filled with his spirit. And we pray. Lord, I pray for every person here. I pray, Lord, you would fill us all with the Holy Spirit. That we would be an empowered church like the first church was as recorded here in this history of the first 30 years of the church's existence, that we would be an accelerated church, an actual church, an action church. For your glory, Lord, help us to work the works of him who sent us while it is day to do all that you would have us to do. Forgive us of our sins and help us to forgive those who sinned against us so that we can experience the joy of being forgiven. I pray, Lord, that you would remove all animosity and grudges from our hearts, that we would set our faces like flint to live a life free of grudges. When we feel one cropping up, that we would run to you and get set free of it. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy.